0: Hi folks, while Paul and I are building the new show, and don't worry, it's coming soon, it's time to look back at some classics, and this time we're going back to Afghanistan, and things are going to get a tad imperial. Hi everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins, I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate
1: Paul Wilson... Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show... It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah. the, those howlers,
0: the moments of madness, and they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, mate, I, I see a stan
1: in a country's name, which means we are definitely in your wheelhouse. That's right. We're talking Afghanistan, we're talking the British in India, and we're talking well, the first Afghan war back in the mid-19th 19th. century. Yeah. yeah, right. Now, we've got to remember, mid-19th century, we're still not quite at the British Raj stage of India, but obviously the British are in India, and it's, they're there as the East East. India Company. Um, Now... A company that goes back (laughs) for centuries. That's right. And yeah, the the howlers, strings of howlers, between the British Raj and the East India Company, the different catalogues of greed, arrogance, exploitation, it's hard to know really where to start. But I want today to talk about the first Afghan war, um, because to me, that really is the standout howler. And of course, you know it's many of the problems. Oh, they are still reverberating today. That's right. Yeah, and yeah, when you think of the Brits in India, mate. Right, yeah, usually you think. Hey, of B- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say a name Robert Clive. Yeah, exactly, Clive of India, yeah. Jewel in the Crown, all that kind of thing. But as you said, yeah, the East India Company does go back much, much further than that. It's actually formed back in 1599 um, under the Elizabeth I. There were some, these guys that were nicknamed the Adventurers led by James Lancaster and Queen Elizabeth issues the Royal Decree for them to set up a colony in India um, which is going to be run for the next few hundred years by the East India Company out of what become their headquarters in Calcutta and also in Bombay. I'm glad you mentioned Bombay or Mumbai as we call it yeah.
0: now because to me this is so typical of colonial attitudes towards not just India, but to virtually any of the countries that the the European powers went into. Mm. Okay. Mumbai, as it's called now, Bombay, people have been settled there since the Paleolithic era. Right. Uh, by 1000 BCE, it's a major maritime trade centre with both Persia and Egypt. Sure. 1348, it's conquered by the Muslim forces and becomes part of the kingdom of Gujarat. Right, yeah, Gujarat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> but, mate, then the Portuguese stick their nose in. They, they have a crack at take, sure. taking over in 1507. But That's they, right. They gain control of it by 1534. That's right. Now... In 1662, Catherine of Braganza, mm-hmm. the Portuguese princess and daughter of uh, the Portuguese king, John VI, now she marries Charles II. Ah, yes,
1: she marries Charles II, of England. Sure.
0: Now, also to Charles II at the time was a little bit broke. Right. Now, her diary included £500,000 in cash, right. trade deals with Portugal, as well as, for good measure, Change here, and let's
1: throw in Bombay. Well, well <laughs> yeah, I'm just throwing Bombay. I know, I know, I know exactly where you're coming from there, Mikey, because it really is. That's typical of how, how the sort of colonial attitude of you know, throwing these um, states of millions of people what around you, like trinkets. But here's the thing: after a couple of
0: years, the crown doesn't really know what to do with it in England, so they give Bombay to the East India Company in 1668, and that's how the East India Company gets Bombay. Gotcha.
1: So you know, the East India Company—they're big enough to control things like Bombay and Kolkata, and be given these states. Because uh, give you some facts here, Mikey. Yeah. That the East India Company, at, at its height, right. it rules 90 million Indian subjects. Right. It rules 70 million acres of India. It's got its own flag. It's got its own currency, its own rupees, its own mohirs. It's got its own army of 200,000 men which is larger than most European states at the time. That's a genuinely big army.
0: But correct me if I'm wrong, mate. It Mm. didn't have to always be that way. True. I mean, when things started off... Yeah, that, they, in they, the they, early they, years. You know, they actually were slightly more,
1: I'm not going to say liberal, but more culturally sensitive. Well, they're much more culturally aware. And to be honest, at the beginning, they were traders rather than political. They weren't trying to establish political control. They were just looking to make money out of the trade. And, yeah, a lot of them, to do that, you know, they would get they would get in with the local culture. Because, like, a third of all the employees of the East India Company,
0: they were actually in marriages with Indian women, and they... Well, at the start, they respected culture. And they were absorbing the local culture, that's right, you know. Yeah, there's one name that rings a bell to me,
1: Charles Stuart. Now, he becomes, mm. in the early days, known as Charles, Charles Hindu. Charles Hindu stuart that's Be- right. Because he converts to Hindu. That's right, the Hinduism. And, of course, you've got Captain James Achilles Kirkpatrick, who's the uh, the resident ambassador in Hyderabad. He converts to Islam. He marries uh, Kara Nisa, who's one of the most noble um, descendants of the royal Mughal line. But but I'm about to say yes. That's all well and good. But today we're talking about the debacle that is the first Afghan War. Yeah, because unfortunately, that's those are the early days. But by the mid 19th century, that is not the that's case. Not okay, what's and we've got the first Afghan War, 1839 to 1842, and of course the backdrop to that is the the Great Game, the what the Russians call the Tournament of Shadows, going on in Central Asia. And, and what's really happening, Mikey, oh. is that we're looking for. Competition, power, influence, not just in Central Asia, but of course, everyone is fearful in British India of attack or invasion. Because, you know, since Alexander the Great Times, you've got people coming over, charging over the Hindu Kush um, and invading the plains of India from the north.
0: And round about the same time, Russia's always looking south
1: into Afghanistan. That's right. In fact, Russia's on a bit of an expansionist push at the time anyway. That's it. So Russia's pushing into Central Asia. The Brits are in control um, in India, but not quite as in control as you might think they were. Because... (laughs) and I don't know you're going to like this, yeah. uh, a little bit of map time. Oh, um, if you look at this map here, Mike, of India in the middle of the 19th century, right, yes. Yeah, you can see how, yeah, sure, British uh, control all south of Mumbai, south of Calcutta, the, the, the bottom triangle, if you like. But at the top... You can see quite clearly there, you've got the massive Sikh empire, which is, you know, Punjab. Um, you've got a much, much bigger Afghanistan than what's the present day Afghanistan. Right. And you've got this northwest frontier uh, area separating um, British India proper um, from Central Asia. And the the Brits they what they're really worried about as he said is is maybe the Russians coming through right. even Napoleon a few uh, uh, fifty years earlier had mentioned when he did a deal with Persia he had his eyes set on invading India through the Hindu Kush too so yeah that's their that's their real fear Just, that,
0: like. that they really want to
1: hold down this area for their own
0: security in India
1: but of course the locals know that and right. um, so the Afghan rulers are quite happy to play one against the other yeah because um, <laughs> never heard that before mate. and when a new emir takes the throne in Afghanistan, a guy called Dos Mohammed. Yeah. He wants to try and win some more ground for the Afghanistan versus that Sikh empire I was telling you about because they've stolen Peshawar. He wants to steal Uh, it back. He wants Peshawar back. Yeah. And he said to the Russians, yeah, if you help me out, then I will, you know, maybe, yeah, I'll join your sphere of influence rather than the British sphere of influence. But, um, unfortunately, yeah, for Dos Mohammed, the Russians, at first seem to play ball, but right. then they realise that she'd get a better deal if they go in with Persia, because Persia want to steal Herat from the west of Af- Afghanistan. So the, the Russians drop Dost Mohammed um, and side with Persia, and he's left a little bit isolated, and that's when the British think they see their chance. OK, folks, so
0: we're in 19th century India, one of the largest companies the world has ever seen, the mm. East India Company, it's seizing every opportunity in sight, legally or mm. illegally even. And the British government, like it's trying to stamp its foot of authority without killing the golden
1: goose. Right. So they form what's called the Army of the Indus. Oh, dear. Okay. I don't know why. The moment you said that, I, my first reaction was, oh, dear. Okay. And then what their plan is, there was a... Before Dost Mohammed. the oh. guy in charge in Afghanistan was a guy called Shah Shuja. Now, he was the emir, but he was a very, very unpopular emir. And he got kicked out pretty quickly on. But the Brits think, if we can invade... Put him back on the throne. Put
0: put Shah Shuja back on. Shah
1: Shuja back on. They kick out Dost Muhammad, and then they'll have a sort of puppet, if you like, um, who they can manipulate to do their bidding. Um, And it'll also keep the Sikhs on board because that'll stop. Shah Shuja will say, yeah, no, sure. The Sikhs can keep um, Peshawar. And so the Sikhs, who are at this stage, are very big allies of the British. um, They'll keep them happy as well. Right. I think I got my head around the plan. Yep. So... Describe what's happening with the Army of the Indus. Right, so the Army of the Indus, 38,000 men, okay? What? And 30,000 camels and cattle in this enormous train that's going marching up, up the Indus, turn left, and over the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. That's a logistic nightmare. Well, <laughs> it, is a, it is a nightmare, particularly if you've got regiments bringing their own packs of foxhounds. You're kidding me. No, no. If, if each officer had 60 camels for his personal af- personal affairs and kit, and there's another regiment had two camels just to bring their own cigarettes. <laughs> but those extra camels, they're not the real problem, are they, Paulie? The real problem... The real is- problem is half of these forces are under British Army command, but the other half are under the orders of the East India Company. And these birds <laughs> of a feather do not want to stick together. Yet in terms of the initial invasion, they do manage to engineer a quick victory. A very quick victory, yeah, oh. because, of course, Afghanistan, you see, the problem with Afghanistan is it never has a standing army. Um, you know, the way that Afghanistan is ruled is through all the feudal chiefs, the local tribes, who, who come together in things like the Durbar to right. discuss the politics. But really, you know, they're a complete ethnic Um, hodgepodge, you've got Uzbeks, Pashtuns, all different people from all over. Um, And it's very, very hard to keep them all on board at the same time. So as when the British army arrived, there's actually no one to defend Afghanistan. So Dost Mohammed, he flees. Shah Shuja, yes, very quickly, he's put on the throne in Kabul. But of course, the problem with that is... All he really becomes is the Emir of Kabul, because <laughs> but outside in the countryside, oh, yeah. all these tribes, sure, they haven't come to fight the British, but they're not going to give their land to the British either. So the British are in the old fortress in Kabul, the Bala Hazar. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take long, as you can imagine, for them to become pretty unpopular. Um, and in fact, so unpopular that Shah Shuzha, you know calls them in and says, look, you, you guys are just really, really upsetting the locals. Can you any chance you could sort of move away a little bit. Get out of the city of Kabul. Get out of Kabul, yeah, exactly. So they have to relocate to a whole new cantonment outside of the city walls here in the northeast of Kabul. But as you highlighted earlier, Mikey, there is this rivalry between the East India Company officers and the British Army officers. Right. So all the British Army go to the cantonment, but the East India officers, they think they know best. They think they know how to handle locals. So they all stay in their houses in the old city. Of Kabul. Of Kabul. And then around the country, you've got these garrisons in places like... Bimean and Ghazni and Kandahar. but it, And you know, the idea is that they all control the country for Shah Shuja, but the reality is they're never even allowed out of barracks. Actually, mate, I've, I've got to jump in here because I've actually been to Kandahar. Ah, and this is a quite impressive, actually, here, folks, because, um, yeah, I've, I've done the, a lot of Central Asia. I've been up to the Cairo Pass, but, but Mikey's you... actually been inside the country prop, for proper to Kabul and Kandahar.
0: Yeah, uh, Kabul, Kandahar and Taran Kaut. I, I was over there... Uh, uh, about 10 years ago, doing some shows for the troops with uh, with a couple of bands. So, by the time I got to Kandahar, I'm not talking about the city of Kandahar, I'm mm. talking about the military base Kandahar. Yeah. It was a small city unto itself. Right. The, all, all the allied forces had bases there. It was based around a, a quadrangle, which is like the size of two or three football fields. <laughs> right. And we go, yeah, whether there was a Macca's and a fantastic, fantastic espresso shop, but. The one smell you can't get out of your nostrils. Okay, so there's a lot. There's thousands of people living there. Sure. So there's a sewage works. Right. Which is not covered. Okay. It's known as the... Rudimentary. Yeah, well, you know, as rudimentary as, as can be. It's called the poo farm. Right. But the soldiers reckoned that the Taliban knew the location of the poo farm. Ah. And once every couple of weeks, just for spite, they would lob a rocket Into Into the the, which means that some poor poor (laughs) expert in IEDs had to put his hazcam gear on and
1: jump in and fish around in the muck to find an unexploded rocket. Well, that definitely sounds like a howl of a job, and that brings me to my first howler for this episode, Mike. Yes, um, who is a the new commander in 1841 that the British appoint to run this. Um, debacle, and his name is Major General George Keith Elphinstone. I've got to say, mate, that is such an upper-class British yeah, name. I know. Horrible name. Horrible guy. Huh. He's bedridden. He's got gout. He's got rheumatism. He's basically the dodgiest old man, and, and it's gone down in the history books. as probably the worst general um, ever to serve in the British Army. Even his friends said, and this is a quote, he vacillates on every point. Um, so I'm going to ask to question here. So he's British Army... Mm. So what do the East India Company officers think of him? Well, that's it. Of course, you know, just, they just—they completely ignore him, mate. You know, they disobey all his orders. They don't show him any respect. And, of course, as soon as they don't show him any respect, you know, the, the local tribes smell weakness um, and they rise up. They want to test his mettle. And, of course, before you know it, you've got localised rebellions all over the country. All other do. Now, I'm afraid, Mikey, I've got... Um, it's not just one howler I've got for you today, as uh, you can imagine. So I'll go straight on to howler number two, who's William Hay McNaughton. Now, he's a political agent for the East India Company. So he's technically... He's serving the East India Company, right. not a British army. But And he's been known as a bit of a toady for Lord Auckland, who's the governor general um, back in, in India proper. And he's in charge of paying all the subsidies to the local tribes to keep them on side. Like, when you say subsidies, could you also call them bribes? Yeah, basically we're talking bribes yeah, So for 80,000 rupees a month, mm. um, the local tribes promised to keep things like the Khyber Pass um, and the main passes between Afghanistan and India, keep them open, keep them safe, saw the supply lines for the British army. But McNaughton, in September 1841, he decides to reduce these subsidies, cut them in half effectively, from 80,000 rupees to 40,000 rupees. So you're talking about the Khyber Pass here, and can I just point out that I have not mentioned the carry-on movie, carry-on (laughs) up the Khyber, and Sid James, classic. Right. But what tribes are we talking about? Okay, we're talking about the Gilzai tribes here, Mikey, so they've declared jihad, now I've got a great quote for you here, Mikey. This is the response from McNaughton, and it really does sum up his sort of the Ar- attitude of it—an arrogance, arrogance of, this, yeah. of this man. He says, The Eastern Gilzai are kicking up a row about some deductions which have been made from their pay. The rascals have completely <laughs> succeeded in cutting communications for the time being, which is very provoking to me at this time. But... These vagabonds will be well trouts for their pains. Total dropkick, hundred percent, mate. And to rub salt into the wounds, Mikey, he he goes out on campaign, and yes, he does um, defeat the tribes. But he then makes all the tribal chiefs send their children to Kabul, to Shah Shuja's court as hostages to make sure they won't rebel again in the future. And you said before no one likes this guy Shuja. He doesn't like that. No one likes this guy Shuja, and there's a good reason for it because he was famous throughout his time on the throne the first time round for torturing, mutilating anyone he could lay his hands on. Not good. Right, now, but I need you to park that one, Mikey, okay, because... Okay, I'm, I'm parking, i sure you and the children hostages, because yep. where are we going now? Park Howler number two, because I need to quickly just get on to Howler number three before I come back. And Howler number three is a guy called Alexander Burns, who is nicknamed Secunda Burns, a, a Secunda Alexander after Alexander the Great. Now he... Yeah, I've got to feel not so great. In <laughs> Not so He's not very great. He's a political officer, Mike, he's, which I think says it all, doesn't it? So once again, he's another East India Company another guy. Another East India Company guy, yeah. And he's one of those who said, I'll stay in the old city. I know what hey, I'm doing. Yeah. I don't need to go to the, the cantonment with the British army. So he's one of the guys that stays in Kabul. Yeah. So he's in Kabul. He's in his old house. Um, and he's, you know, man about town, thinks he's really fancy. And one day, on the 1st of November, in fact, a local Kashmiri slave girl, who is the slave girl of a a local Pashtun chief, Abdullah Khan Achaksai, she runs away from um, the Pashtun's houses and makes her way and takes refuge in Alexander Burns' house. Now... Oh dear. Well, you say, oh dear, Mike, I don't blame you because Burns, what does he do? He doesn't just take her in, he takes her straight to bed. Oh! So, he's bedding the Kashmiri slave girl of the local chief. Uh, now, nah, funnily enough, the local chief's not very happy. He sends around an emissary to try and sort of, you know, negotiate their way out of this. Burns turned around and has the messenger flogged. So, November the 2nd. The day after. The day after happens to be the 17th of the holy month of Ramadan. Now, that might not mean anything to you, Mikey, but that's the anniversary of the Great Battle of Badra. Of 624. All right. When the Muslims defeated the infidels in Mecca, and it was effectively the first holy jihad. Yeah. So he's doing all this on the worst day possible. That's right. So the rallying cry has gone out. Jihad is being proclaimed. The mob go crazy. They go wild. Their Kabul is awash um, with rebellion. They smash into Burns' houses. They kill Burns, they kill his brother Charles, they, unfortunately they also kill, so kill the, the wives and the children of the household, and everybody ends up torn to pieces with the heads of Burns and Charles and Major Broadfoot as well appearing piked in the market square the next day. See, never good to get piked. <laughs> so, back to Howler number two, as I said. Now... McNaughton. Oh, the tosser. <laughs> yeah, I can't call him our friend, can we? No, yeah, more toss- like a tosser. Um, McNaughton is not far behind. Now, you see, I told you about the earlier leader, Dos Mohammed. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, He's gone into exile. He, he, first of all, he goes up to Bukhara, now he's in exile in India. But his son, Akbar Khan, he has stayed in Afghanistan. He stayed in Kabul. And he is now seen as the leader of... Of the opposition. So the uh, the opposition to Shuja. To Shuja and to the British. Right. Okay. So this mob um, that smashes into Burns' house, they're all calling for Akbar Khan to be their leader. So McNaughton realizes this um, and so he tries to do a deal. Oh. So he says, okay, look, we get it. No one likes Shah Shuja. We need to get rid of him. But we can't let Dost Mohammed back. How about if we made you? the vizier, you, Mr. Akbar Khan. The, uh, the son of... Th- yeah, the son of Dos Mohammed right. will give you the power. You know, you'll be basically the prime minister, if you like, um, for uh, Afghanistan. But at the same time as doing those secret deals to try and placate the opposition, uh, <laughs> Mitt Norton's yeah, yeah, right also here. going around the local markets <laughs> offering very large sums no. of money for any assassin who will bump Akbar Khan off. Yeah? Oh. So the classic double dealing, right? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Akbar Khan, he's a smart cookie, and of course he's got a lot of contacts dotted around the city. I was going to say, he gets wind of this plan. Yeah, he smells a that, right? Right. So he invites McNaughton um, to an official negotiation table on the 23rd of December, um, and McNaughton turns up with his three other British army officers and East India Company agents. Yeah. But of, course, yeah. but of course, Akbar Khan. McNaughton and the officers sit down. He locks the door. They're all murdered. And the next day, on New Year's Day, McNaughton's corpse is dragged through the streets of Kabul like a ragdoll and taken around the market square where the Burns' heads are all sitting on the pikes. Oh! <laughs>
0: We're now in early January 1842 in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We've lost
1: two Howlers. Yes. But we've still got the first still one. We've got to do- back to number one, Mr. Yeah. Elphinstone. That's right. So Elphinstone, interestingly, early January, finally makes a decision. An unusual thing for him, apparently. <laughs> and his decision is he's going to cut his losses. He'll do a deal with Akbar Khan. He'll do a deal with Sharjah so that he can withdraw his forces, withdraw the garrison and go back to India, yeah, he knows he's going to be defeated, yeah. and he knows there's no point sticking around, so he's going to get his troops out of there. Now, by this stage, Mike, you know, we said we started with 38,000, now we've only got 16,500 left in the British contingent. And to give you an idea, 4,500 of those are military are, are soldiers, but only 700 of them are British soldiers, 3,800 are are Indian sepoys. Yeah? Se- sepoys. Uh, indigenous soldiers of the Brits conscripted out of the Indian states under their control. Precisely. And then you've got 12,000, what they call the, the camp followers, you know, the retinues, the hmm. servants, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, January. Oh, hang on, yeah. January in Afghanistan. 1842. You've been to Afghanistan. Yeah. it's Particularly up in the hills there, Maggie. The weather, the winter weather is... Well, it's not just bleak. It's dangerous. It, it is very dangerous. So they have to do a deal with Shuja. But Shuja says, yeah, sure, no, don't, that's okay. Um, we will give you safe passage back through the Pass, back through the passes to India. But, of course, like we've been saying all along, just because someone says something in Kabul doesn't mean those local tribes on the way are going to listen. Yeah. Well, once again, history repeats itself. Yeah. So these tribes, and they know that There's there's gorges and treacherous passes Hmm. all the way along. And if you look on that that map, Mike, you can see around the Kabul River, River, right? Yeah, so as you follow the Kabul River on its way down towards British India at the time, yeah, the the number of opportunities for attack and ambush and and plundering, yeah, 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 it's it's, right. So on the 9th of January, Shah Shuja said, Sure, I'll offer you safe passage, but everyone knows that's not worth the paper it's written on. So they also speak to Akbar Khan. Yeah, They know they need to get him on side as well. Now let's remind us of Akbar Khan is the guy who actually dragged McNaughton's body through the streets like a rag doll. He, he did, yeah. But he's also, because he's the son of Dost Muhammad, he still does um, hold some sway. Oh, yeah. um, and the Brits decide that perhaps, you know, yeah, better the devil you know. So they set out. And mm. for the first couple of days, doesn't go too badly. But as we said, the winter weather is playing havoc. Um, and it's very clear that the tribes along the way are not going to be listening to what Shah shuja has got to say. So they asked Akbar Khan, can you help against the tribes? He says, no, those local tribes, they will show no mercy. But what I will do for you, I will take all your British women and children, I'll take them back into Kabul, and I'll keep them hostage, safety, as long as, you know, Further down the line, you pay but, a nice, pay me a nice uh, ransom, pay a ransom yes. for them to be released. But, yeah, quite, you know, looking at it quite objectively, it, it makes sense. It did make sense. And the British, to be honest, were very, very happy to do it. But the problem was the East India Company uh-huh. said, sure, that's fine for the British women, but if they take the Indian women, the Indian children, um, it, all the camp followers, we're never going to pay any ransom for that. Oh. So Akbar says, well, well in that case... I'm not going to take them hostage. I'll just leave them to the tribesmen. Best of luck. See you later. And sure enough, on the 10th of January in Tungi Tariki, which is this narrow pass, 50 yards long, just four yards wide, the Gilzai tribesmen attack. They ambush the column. Now, a lot of the soldiers, particularly the, the local Indian uh, soldiers, the sepoys, they've already lost fingers and thumbs from frostbite. So they, can, the they can't even use their, 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 their guns. They can't fire back. They can't use their guns. They can't protect the camp followers. And the camp followers are sacrificed wow. to slaughter. Yeah? And the Gilzai tribesmen come in. They round up all the camp followers at the back um, of the army columns. And the, the, those they don't kill, they strip and leave to freeze to death. So what was Akbar Khan doing at this time? Well, that's the problem, Mikey. He was just sitting on his horse at the top of the hill, watching it all go on, doing absolutely nothing, sitting on his fingers, right? So, um, and look, I I hate to use the word hero in this episode, but I think it is worth pointing out that there were a couple of people who did try their best. There was Captain Shelton of the 44th Regiment who single-handedly held off the Afghan tribesmen, um, on the rear of the column. And they they, they called him the bulldog with his sword. And there's a great story about the Afghans shouting, surrender, and him shouting, not bloody likely, as he dispatched another five or six attackers to kingdom come. So that was January the 10th, right? That's right. And then the next day, January the 11th in the evening, by this stage, Alfred Stone knows he's in big trouble, Okay, So he said, I'll need to meet Akbar Khan again. I'm going to have to do... Another deal, just to save my soldiers, just to make sure that we can get back to India in one piece. So him and Shelton, who we talked about, the paymaster, Johnson, Captain Skinner, they all meet Akbar Khan in his field operations HQ. Otherwise known as his tent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he offers them a a nice meal and some warm tea and sits them all down and starts to do what appears to be, doing the negotiations for the hostages and for the rest of the army. But of course, another trick up his sleeve. um, And he says, no, no, I'm going to capture you guys as well. I'm going to take you hostage and I'm going to take you back to Kabul. Now, Captain Skinner resists. And? um, And unfortunately, he gets shot straight in the face. Elphinstone, Shelton, Johnson, yep, they have to go back to uh, Kabul as hostages. They have no choice. So now the British forces, what's left of the British army, what's left of the East India Company. They're now under the command of a guy called Brigadier Thomas Ancretel. Um He keeps going. He keeps pushing, trying to get back um, to India. They make it as far as the Gandamak Pass. Now, can I jump in here, Paulie? Mm. Every time you've said the word pass, <laughs> there's been trouble. Yeah. Well, the Gandamak Pass, I'm afraid, Mikey, is the scene of the final massacre. And by then, you're down to your last 65 uh, British Um, soldiers. Out of a starting number of 4,500. 4,500 that's right. Plus the 12,000 camp followers who've already been sacrificed. And every single one bar one chap, Dr. William Bryden, every single one massacred and only Dr. William Bryden is the only survivor who manages to get... The the only British survivor. The only British survivor on his wounded horse. He arrives two days later at the British garrison in Jalalabad. So what happens to Olfenstein? Yeah, well, so he doesn't make it either because he dies a few weeks later in Kabul as a hostage and he's basically a broken man. So how was this received back in England? Yeah, well, back in London, obviously, the newspapers, the black borders everywhere. And this is one account. They say of the first Afghan war, it was a war begun for no wise purpose. It was carried on with a strange mixture of rashness and timidity brought to a close after suffering and disaster without much glory attached either to the government which directed or the great body of troops which waged it. Not one benefit, political or military, has been acquired. Pretty damning words for an epitaph. But I've got to ask, what's happening back in India? Well, that's it. It all goes to pot, Mike, I'm afraid. You know, um, Afghanistan, Shah Shuja doesn't last... The week. Yeah, Dost Mohammed comes back out of exile. He becomes the emir again um, with his son Akbar Khan. Of course, he then turns on the British and he turns on the Sikhs, the British um, allies. The Brits then sell, sell the Sikhs up the Swanee in the Sikh Wars of the 1840s. And to be honest, Mikey, that's really the, the final nails in the coffin for the East India Company because right. in 1858, the British government takes over completely um, after the Indian mutiny um, with the British Raj. Um, and of course, in terms of Afghanistan, you know, um, you've you got the second Afghan war in 1878. That fares very little better. And then 100 years later, in 1978...
0: You've got the, the Russians going you know, into Afghanistan, you know, destabling what was never stable in the first place. And we're still dealing with that, with that now.